Paul, so I don't know about you, but I think this has been my favourite World Cup tournament since 1986. Yeah, absolutely. That's the exact metric for me as well. I mean, the thing is, during the group stages, you always sort of feel like the World Cup is being defined by the group stages. But ultimately, that's not really the thing you remember. But for, for a World Cup group stage... Well, I, I just can't remember anything like it. No, it's been fantastic. Uh, yeah, the narrative is written by the the knockout stages, of course. You know, the big the big games are always the ones uh, that mean the most. Uh, and you know, we'll look back and on uh, this tournament, uh, depending on how good those group games are in years to come. Um, of course, you know, and that's part of the reason why 1986 was so good. So many dramatic games from the quarterfinals onwards. But yeah, uh, you know, I get the feeling that every World Cup should be played in South America. It's it's the atmosphere just uh, around the country and in the grounds. It's the style of football. There's been a lot of uh, open games. I wonder whether that's something to do with the conditions, although, of course, not all of it has been hot, Brazil being such a massive country. And it's just the general sense of fun and creativity and, and good football there's been it's it's been fantastic so far yeah absolutely the sort of political landscape's been quite interesting to follow since doing the world cup preview show I, I was so embarrassed about not having educated myself about the politics of it i went out and looked attended a talk by a writer called david goldblatt at the bristol festival of football ideas david goldblatt a very fine book called the the ball is round if you haven't read that one a history of world football right fantastic his talk is on YouTube. It's about the history of Brazil through the medium of World Cups, really. And it, he was really fascinating. It was just before the World Cup kicked off, so didn't know how it was going to go. And I, I think it's fair to say it's been better than the worst fears, but that the Brazilian police's ridiculous heavy-handedness continues, showing no sign of being abated. Yes, and and that I mean that does define some of the the narrative of this tournament, of course. You know, and I, one of the iconic moments, of course, was. The ITV World Cup booth, obviously built at much expense on the Copacabana, being stoned by an angry crowd and Adrian Charles looking rather nervous inside and and completely ignoring the politics behind it and uh, talking about the disgraceful crowds and being delighted when the police came along. You know, very, very ignorant coverage, uh, which you would kind of expect from him, of course. But it's the landscape within which this tournament has uh, taken place. And, you know, one of the other things I, I can't help but mention, given that we're talking about this, is that, you know, remember that this is a fantastic World Cup. We love the football, but it's being run by FIFA, the most corrupt organisation in the history of corrupt organisations. And, uh, and you know, I, I have this in the back of my mind all the time. I, I don't know whether you've been watching John Oliver's uh, last week tonight on Sunday nights. Uh, it's on HBO. Um, those of you who can catch it, catch it. And if you can't, download it. But uh, an excellent 12-minute rant about FIFA. Brilliant stuff. And for American audience as well, which is... And he's a British guy, so which is a kind of interesting way of doing it. But it's it's always there in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, football's great, but there's corrupt people who've taken bribes, who are making millions and millions of dollars out of the hardships of ordinary Brazilian people because the government has spent billions and raked in almost no money from this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's like, just like actually watching the football, this conversation is happening with that parked on the side. Like, we know this is going on, but this is what's happening on the pitch. And, and you know, actually, you, you mentioned ITV's coverage. The thing that really, really annoyed me, almost more than anything else in the punditry, I have to say almost, because there's been some truly staggeringly poor stuff, but the opening show was very much pitched as, well, it'll all be fine so long as Brazil win, and then the chippy natives won't kick off. Whereas actually, you know, there were Brazilian street parties organised with the specific intention of cheering on Croatia for that opening ceremony. You know, it was it was properly ignorant of the cultural landscape that they were operating in and also incredibly disrespectful. You know, I mean, what a thing it is, what a patronising thing it is to suggest that it'll all be fine so long as Brazil win, as if the protests are somehow about the low quality of Brazilian football. Yes, completely ignorant, completely. But anyway... So that that rant aside, and uh, you know, uh, politics rant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we do that, rears don't we? It, its ugly head down again. <laughs> you didn't come here for a lecture on communism. Well, yeah. I mean, we have to let you do it, otherwise you might kick off. You know, <laughs> and all that. 
Exactly. The football has been absolutely out of this world. Blatter talked about an interplanetary World Cups, well, Galaxy Cups, if we discover alien species. And I tell you, I hope that in pitching the great game of football, it's this that we show them uh, and not the last World Cup. Well, true, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so we're recording this on Sunday morning, gives you some context for, for what we're talking about. And I I thought it couldn't get much better until the, the second half of Germany versus Ghana, which was uh, uh, truly wonderful stuff. And, you know, um, and the interesting thing, of course, is I tweeted earlier in the week just how disappointing the African sides had been because they were until until that and then Nigeria's victory over Bosnia. Um, they'd been very, very disappointing. Even the Ivory Coast 2-1 winning against Japan was somewhat fortunate. It was. Um, and I guess let's segue into, because there's been so many games, we'd just be here forever if we um, if we did one game at a time. And I think we've exhausted our producer's patience for three-hour-long podcasts. Thanks to everyone for the nice feedback on that. The number of people that I got messages from saying that they'd listened to the whole thing from start to finish in one sitting was, frankly, uh, slightly scary. Um, but it was totally awesome, of course. So what we've decided to do is we've decided to um, break down a few highlights um, and just sort of a bit scattershot, but we'll, we'll cover the group stages so far via the media of spectacular moments and uh, one of my highlights you mentioned the Ivory Coast Japan game it wasn't the best game of the tournament by any means but Japan were in pretty comfortable control and Ivory Coast looked all over the place until the arrival of Didier Drogba and I don't think I've ever in my life seen a football match which was so transformed by a substitution when it wasn't to do with the substitute's actual contribution tactically or uh, you know what they did with the ball Drogba coming on seemed to lift the Ivory Coast they all seemed to grow a foot yeah the man had arrived hadn't he it was it was amazing actually I mean he's been on the bench the Ivory Coast games 36 now and playing in Turkey or wherever he's playing in China before that so uh, not the force he once was as a player but clearly still inspirational so yeah no I think I think that was a great moment one of my other moments since uh, we're on uh, sort of you know Africa related things was uh, Ghana versus USA not a fantastic game although you know dramatic for many reasons the goal inside 30 seconds for the states and then Ghana came back so strongly they were actually very good in that game and uh, although, you know, not not the end product and then equalised. And then USA scored with a couple of minutes to go and uh, and, and the goal scorer uh, didn't appear to believe uh, what was happening to him at the time. A, a marvellous reaction, I thought. Absolutely beautiful. I got so much stick. Uh, talking about the, the World Cup preview show, there was a couple of bits where we'd made small errors or whatever. But the thing that really surprised me was how much kind of angry feedback I got from USA fans for saying I thought that they were not the best side. And I've been accused before the Ghana game because I wanted Ghana to win. I was accused of hating on the USA. I really like the hashtag USMNT. You know, I think they've got a really nice spirit I really quite like the way the country kind of gets behind them in the states and and all that and I just I I happen to really like love Ghana but so I wanted them to win but that celebration was so moving wasn't it yeah it's um it's interesting obviously the uh, CIA has got to you there you changed your tune (laughs) your anti-Americanism with it at its zenith before the World Cup and now suddenly you're USA 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 interesting hmm and also you can't we can't discuss that game without mentioning the Ghana goal because they spent the whole second half trying to score a wonder goal essentially it was all really over kind of super dramatic elaborate stuff and then they finally scored the goal they were trying to score one of the top five goals of the tournament certainly yes uh yeah excellent goal yeah they they like a shot uh, and and some very intricate play actually at times from Ghana there is definitely some weaknesses in that side I don't expect to see them in the, the latter latter stages of the World Cup I mean they might not even go through of course but some good stuff at times right talking of wonder goals uh, another favorite moment uh Robin Van Persie's header my um, I've seen some diving headers in my time. You think of the 1987 World uh, FA Cup final and, and all of that, but uh, that was the diving header to beat all diving headers. That whole game, I mean, I think this is where we sort of move away from our not breaking down games uh, to discuss a game in depth because, well, first of all, managed by Louis van Gaal, um, essentially Manchester United beat the world champions 5-1. 
Totally, yeah, totally. We're, we're claiming that. People yeah. have said that the Cahill goal has sort of overtaken the Van Persie goal in the in the score, like goal of the tournament stakes, but it's not even close for me. I've seen goals like that Cahill goal before. I have never seen a goal like that Robin Van Persie goal. It was insane. I mean, not only a, a great header, but a wonderful ball uh, from the left-hand side from um, Daily Blint, uh, floated in, perfectly weighted, and, and Van Persie... Not only is he scored with a diving header, but it's coming from behind him. So it almost seems physically impossible that he can look at the goal and the keeper, work out how to loop it over the keeper and see the ball coming at him all at the same time. I compared it without apology uh, to jazz improvisation uh, in an article on the Bleacher Report, which I know like, it's, like you're not allowed to do that if you write about football. But it's the only analogy I could think of because it, it really was that the thing about jazz improvisers is the reason that they can do what they do is because of the amount of time they've spent on the basics. And for Van Persie, it's the amount of times he's thought about the basics and, and practice stuff um, that's enabled that. And, and there's that book by David Winner called Brilliant Orange, which basically purports that Dutch football is unique because of all the national games, it's the one most focused on use of space, which is a sort of something in the Dutch national psyche because they've got quite serious issues with land mass. And so that effective use of space becomes primary and actually he used that space better because I don't think anyone was expecting him to head that ball it, he he looked like he had plenty of time to take it down but of course taking it down would have risked allowing Casillas back into the game whereas that header meant that Casillas was completely stranded. Mm, now while we're on Casillas I have to say I've quite enjoyed his capitulation uh, not not that you know I particularly hate on Casillas or anything. There are definitely members of the Spanish side that are more worthy of the hate. But this is a man who, for two years, has, well, for more than this, has been treated like a king and, and appears to be undroppable. And I don't quite understand why he's undroppable at a national level, because um, there are clearly goalkeepers better than him. But uh, how many mistakes has he made in this World Cup? I, I mean, on the face of it, all but one or two of the Spanish goals conceded to date, uh, you could either directly attribute to Casillas or, or at least in part, uh, and that's quite um, that's quite a that's quite a criticism, I think. But but also pretty damning of the manager who who's picked a player who only played in Champions League games like last season or cup games for Real Madrid, and there's a reason why he was dropped by two managers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's true to say that Spain would still be in the World Cup if. De Gea had started for them instead of Casillas um, but you'd think that they would be considerably more likely to be I mean Robin's second goal was an absolute howler wasn't it uh, that game was just amazing I just watched that with because it was on the second day of the tournament the the opening game had been kind of good but that was when the tournament really took life it was watching something that you didn't think was possible Spain was so bad in the second half of that game like defensively all over the place but also they basically seem to have lots of people have written this as the death of Tiki Taka but they're not even playing Tiki Taka no they're not at all and and this is the interesting thing you know they've they've played in a certain way for six years there have been highs and lows in that I think the sort of 2008 to 2010 period of both Spain and Barcelona was much more exciting than the period after that in terms of the type of football they played but they brought in a traditional number nine and and they're playing uh, in a much more traditional European fashion this is not Tiki Taka so the death of Tiki Taka may have come but it's not come in this tournament no absolutely and it was suicide rather than murder you know it was thrown out. I mean, it's interesting because Euro 2012, Spain were not particularly great to watch until the final when they became electric again. And you saw some of that 2008 era Spain. But this this game, they just looked ponderous. Like their their passing was not very good. No, it, it wasn't. And uh, I mean, defensively, as you mentioned, really, really poor. PK took the uh, the blame for that, I suppose. But it wasn't just him. Casillas as well, as I mentioned. Uh, but yeah, the passing, no zip to it very very predictable because it was so slow so it was all very one paced and and that's not actually what you associate with tiki taka because the, the thing is 
uh, while a you know, ball retention is everything, actually it speeds up in the final third and that's the thing that does for most of the opposition but it, uh, there's been none of that at all. Um, from a United perspective, that game was incredible to watch because it was Van Gaal taking a team that wasn't perhaps the most naturally gifted squad and using its couple of genuine world superstars in incredibly devastating fashion to destroy a team that probably had more depth of quality and uh, that's really assuming the transfer window doesn't uh, seriously accelerate between now and the beginning of the season, this is exactly what he's going to need to do for us. Van Persie celebrating that wonderful goal by running over and high-fiving Van Gaal and every single United fan in the world jumping up and down and punching the air, presumably at that point, apart from maybe some Spanish ones. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and, uh, you know, maybe it's a sign of things to come. I think, look, what it is a sign of is, is that Van Gaal is clearly a master tactically and strategically. I mean, he's ripped up the uh, playbook for Holland over the last couple of years. They played 4-3-3 almost every game under Van Gaal until a few weeks before the World Cup. He's decided that his best way of getting the most out of his team is to switch to a back three. Uh, and uh, he's managed to get the team playing in that system very, very quickly. And he's identified specific players for specific positions um, some of it was to do with Strootman's injury and that changing the dynamic of his midfield. He might not have played Wesley Schneider before that injury. Uh, he has. He's played Schneider in a very you know, free creative role. He's played three at the back and he's got Jan Matten and Blint, you know, two excellent wing backs. And it's interesting, you know, I, I don't know that you can extrapolate anything from this to to the United team I've seen people say well you know how are we going to play we play three at the back I don't think you can make that assumption you know I think Van Gaal could play three at the back he could play four he could play five he could play a four three three he could play a four four two I think he's going to work a system out for the players we eventually have come the start of the season but what you do know is that he's able to get more out of the sum of the parts and he's able to pick a long-term plan and tactically uh, you know, in the short term, he seems to get it right. And, uh, you know, these are very good signs for United, I think. And also, so moving on to another highlight, that this is very much related. The Australia 2, Netherlands 3 game was bandanas crazy. But it showed another side of Van Gaal. Because actually, like, lining up in the tunnel before that game, I thought Holland looked really complacent here. This has got after the Lord Mayor's show written all over it. And and of course, so it almost proved to be. But they dug in brilliantly and came back to win that game. Uh, lovely scenes as, first of all, Robin equalised and then young Memphis to pay with 21 Memphis written on the back of his shirt, like the coolest man in the World Cup, uh, scored a cracker. And, and of course, that Cahill goal. Another another very fine, exciting fixture and, and another one where uh, the United manager got a win. Very true. So talking of United managers, past rather than future, David Moyes has been in the papers this week proclaiming his signing of Marouane Fellaini, saying that uh, what he saw in Marouane Fellaini was what Fellaini brought to the the Belgium victory over Algeria. Fellaini coming on as a late substitute and scoring with a a header, funnily enough. And uh, I think this is revisionism in the extreme, isn't it, from David Moyes, who... Uh, you know, after the Lord Mayor show, now wants to say that uh, he was right all along. Uh, Fellaini, interesting, uh, you know, he came on and Belgium did play a little more direct, although they also played some good football, but they put him right up top. Uh, you know, it was uh, a long cross from a deep wide area, David Moyes' favourite, that uh, that got the crucial goal for Belgium to bring them back into the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, if he if he'd signed him to play as a second striker, why did he never play him as a second striker then? Good point. Well made. Um, all right, go on then. That's that's David Moyes. We don't talk about him anymore. What's some uh, another highlight? Ed? Well, um, take this in the right way, people. But uh, I I have found England's capitulation a little amusing. And and uh, you know, look, people hate this when I say anything like that. You're oh, how can you not support England? Um, it's partly to do with uh, the FA and the English media and the English players and the stupid English fans. But, you know, take that in the right way. But, uh, yeah, a little amusing because it, Roy, Roy Hodgson has done a brilliant job on two, two levels, right? One is lowering expectations to the point that no one expected anything from this England side, and he's been an absolute master at that. And the other is actually, and, and this is genuine praise, uh, he's he's got his England side from being utterly dreadful at Euro 2012, not just in terms of the results, but the style of play, to actually being half decent to watch. You know, there are young, in parts, 
uh, attacking side who who is clearly very limited but are trying to progress or evolve into something so you know there's that um but but England's failure I think highlighted so many problems with the English game and with the specific players and and Wayne Rooney uh, and so you know is this a highlight yeah maybe not maybe I'm stretching that but but uh, I have to say I, I think some of the chickens came home to roost especially with Rooney and that decision to play him on the left which was bonkers utterly bonkers and and anyone who's has got any sense of understanding of Wayne Rooney as a player and especially his tactical and discipline could have told you that was bonkers and uh, and you know a complete failure it was um so you know I I guess I got a sense of I told you so about okay well let's park the highlights chat then and we'll come back to this and we'll have some England chat I I thought that it's interesting that you say that he successfully lowered expectations because if anything England's exit from the World Cup has shown the has exposed the myth that that the country had low expectations for England to be just that a myth because if they did have low expectations there wouldn't be this wailing and gnashing of teeth post-mortem going on in the press everyone would just say oh yeah well we, we thought they wouldn't do very well and they haven't done very well I guess the press might argue well we thought they wouldn't do very well but we didn't think we'd do this badly but actually drawn in an incredibly difficult group which is even more difficult than anyone possibly imagined because Costa Rica are going to win group like nobody nobody saw that coming not even Costa Rica like you'd have to be pretty dedicated to Costa Rican football to say no do you know what I think we're going to win this group so actually you know England's failure in inverted commas is much less of a failure than it has been in the past one of my friends said he thought that England would have got through pretty much any other group in in the tournament and I really disagree with that I think there's maybe there's maybe two groups uh, or maybe three that England could have could have been confident of getting through and it would have been a bit of an effort for the rest of them which groups are they then because you know everyone's talked about how easy France's group are but I'm not sure about that I, I mean England struggled against Honduras a pre-world cup and I think Switzerland are a good side yeah I think group H Belgian Russia Korea and Algeria I think I would have been fairly confident about England's ability to get through that and group c colombia ivory coast japan greece i think there'd have been a decent chance i'm not saying england would have walked any of these groups by the way not not at all and i think every other group would have been pretty difficult because like if you look at group f argentina nigeria run and bosnia well that's going to be a real shootout between the, the teams that aren't Arge- argentina and actually england don't stack up that well against teams that just want to break up the play and defend all the time because they've got a problem with creativity in the final third yeah they've got a problem in all sorts of positions yeah. and, uh, and Roy has not been able to find a solution in attacking and it's actually the attacking thing that has let England down so even though they conceded four goals of course but um, not taking the chances not creating enough chances uh, not being able to put any enough pressure on high quality sides and, and you know in it, Italy are, are a good side but they're not a one of the world's best. No one expected them to come to this tournament and win it. And Uruguay were fifth in South American qualifying. He had to play Jordan to actually get into the tournament. And, and it's a country of three million people. So, you know, let's let's put some perspective on this one. So where did it all go wrong? Well, firstly, the Rooney decision completely unbalanced England. Completely. You know, he, he played left. But if you look at his heat map, he actually played centrally. So not only did he step on... Raheem Sterling's toes constantly, forcing Sterling into other areas, uh, but he completely exposed Leighton Baines uh, and uh, gave Italy huge momentum. Moved him later in the game, and exactly the same thing happened. You know, this is a guy who who will play where he wants to play, and uh, you know that failure is masked in part by the fact that he runs around a lot. You know, ran more miles than anyone else. Great, but. You'd have been better off not playing him at all. You could have played anyone on the left. I'd, in fact, you'd been better off with James Milner there. And I don't care that Rooney um, got the assist for Sturridge's goal. Uh, that would have given England a lot more balance. So that is part of the problem. Uh, defensively, it's been a total mess. And, um, you know, I know Cahill has improved and Jaglielka is apparently so good that uh, he's offering Rio Ferdinand lessons these days. But both of them were culpable for goals, both in... Uh, extraordinarily bad positions for some of the four goals England have conceded and then the two fullbacks have been very very poor you know Baines has not had a good tournament and Glenn Johnson run into the box and, and cross for Rooney's goal against Uruguay aside has been very poor too yeah absolutely um I think his decision not to take Ashley Cole as as 
pretty seriously backfired. Jagielka, I thought, was against Uruguay. It was very culpable in both goals. But no one was more culpable in both of those goals than your man, Steven Gerrard. And, I mean, I think this England side would have been better off without Rooney and Gerrard, which is kind of ridiculous because obviously they're both excellent players, but the system didn't really allow for either of them. I thought in the second game, England regressed by moving Sterling out wide and putting Rooney at number 10 because Rooney is a not very good number 10. He did a couple of nice things, actually, to give him some credit. There was a couple of take-ons, which is so rare for him. Um, and it was really nice to see that. And I feel for Wayne Rooney because... I do think that if Wayne Rooney was German or from the US or Portugal, he would have grown into a different sort of player and he would have grown into a better player because he wouldn't have had to deal with the relentless commitment of the English press to build him up and knock him down. You know, as soon as he started to explode onto the scene, this was it. He was Pele. As soon as it started to go wrong, he was a a granny shagger and a a greedy man and, you know, a working class chavy oik and all these kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it has been warfare and, and maybe class warfare, as you're alluding to there. You know, it doesn't do him any good, but I think his game has regressed, you know, and I, you can't you can't talk about England without talking about Rooney, I'm afraid. And there's so much of the England team wrapped up in him and the take on you talked about. He just doesn't do that anymore. You know, Jim, that's an exception, isn't it? Uh, he doesn't beat a man. Uh, you look back at the games in Euro 2004 and the, the few warm-up games he sort of had six and well three or four months before that, where he was playing games for England. The burst of speed, the kind of dynamism that he brought to the game, none of that is there anymore. And you know, for for the odd 60-yard pass, there's there's the time that he doesn't take on a man when he could do. He doesn't shoot. His game is so much more limited than it used to be. Even though you know he may well have matured as a player and understands the game better that kind of explosiveness that marked him out as such a good player when he was a teenager isn't there anymore and it's a massive failing and it's one of the reasons one of the reasons why he's no good in the number 10 role because he's not a classic playmaker right he's not going to dictate the tempo of England's play he's not someone who like Xavi for example who can do that right it's not in his locker so he's a different kind of number 10 he's the He's the guy who, if he's going to start 15 yards behind the main striker, has to have that burst of explosiveness. And he does have good assists because he still can pick out a pass. Uh, he's not, this is the paradox with Wayne Rooney. His numbers are still pretty good. I, you know, They're not in the, the stratospheric levels of Ronaldo and Messi, of course, but, but they are good numbers and consistently good numbers. But the performances have been utterly, utterly turgid for three years now. You know, there are so few excellent performances and I just don't count the let's run around a lot as as being an excellent performance. Absolutely not. So uh, given that United fans were very upset about how much scapegoating Rooney got uh, in relation to Steven Gerrard, let's do some scapegoating of uh, Stevie G. One of my favourite subjects. <laughs> yeah, there's less to say about Gerrard because this is exactly what you're likely to get from him Oh, Steven Gerrard, he's very good, but he makes key errors at crucial times, which cost his team dearly. Not not a great shock in the great paradigm of Steven Gerrard. Well, no, and he, he also hasn't been very good. Uh, you know, he's been completely absent from both England's games and a, a tournament too far for him, for him. Also, tactically, it's not helped him because he's playing in a two with Jordan Henderson. So that midfield is exposed. And, and that's the thing you get if you play Sterling or Rooney at number 10. They're both, you know, they're both going to attack rather than go back, uh, and uh, and tactically Rooney is a mess. And Sterling hasn't got a clue how to play the defensive side of that kind of role and drop back into midfield. So Jordan Henderson, he's he's actually done all right. I think you know he's done all right. He, he gets a lot of the ball more than any other English player. But Gerrard has been a complete mess, uh, offering no cover to the back four. So a terrible mistake in the end in retrospect because he's too old he can't cover the ground can't make up for the extra man he's had a very long season with Liverpool uh, and um, it, it just wasn't right for him uh, my dad said Stephen Gerrard's face looks like Tony Blair trying to defend the Iraq war uh, he just looks like a man who once had hope and enthusiasm and has been beaten by uh, by his job basically and he, he now kind of looks completely haunted uh, which I thought was quite a good description, really, because and the psychological impact of of Liverpool having slipped up and lost the league, you could see it, he was carrying that on his shoulders. You could see it because 
you know, it was it was evident in his performance. And, you know, the back pass to Luis Suarez sort of summed it up the worst. But actually, it was the giving the ball away in midfield for the ball that went out wide to Cavani that really summed it up because it was that was more like him not being able to play his role. You know, that was his job was to keep possession, recycle possession, and, and he couldn't do that. Uh, and it cost England dear. But yeah, so England are out, and that means we get to just enjoy the football now, Ed, which is kind of a relief in a lot of ways because <laughs> um, we don't have you don't have that sort of the one game that comes along. I have to say, at the World Cup was kind of really rolling by the time England started playing when the England and Italy game was due. That Costa Rica Uruguay game had just happened, and so like World Cup fever was really raging. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a terrible nil-nil and harsh everyone's mellow, but it wasn't. It was a really good game, the England Italy game. I thought yes, unless you were Roy Hodgson, Wayne Rooney, or Stephen Gerrard, but we won't go back there. We won't go back there. A very good game for the Italians, of course, who who, who got the victory and, and Pirlo was utterly classy yet again. Funnily enough, not against Costa Rica, a team that worked out how to nullify the threat. Unlike Mr. Roy. I'd keep Hodgson, though, for sure. I would definitely, I wouldn't. Well, have. I don't think there's a better option. I don't think there's any appetite. He's, you know, as I said earlier, he's trying to move the team in the right direction. I think he's made some mistakes. He's not infallible. Clearly, he's not infallible, and he's he's working with uh, not a huge amount of quality there. But but there are teams that work with less quality who've done better, and I think you know that's that's a good marker, right? So this England side is not going to transform into the next European Championship winners by a miracle. Um, there's going to have to be some pretty harsh evolution now. Uh, there's already talk about. Gerard staying on that would be a huge mistake uh, I, I would be tempted if I was Hodgson to bin Rooney as well just because you've got uh, better options in most positions that you could play him and uh, um, he's going to have some tough decisions to make I think next couple of years absolutely um, okay so I want to start talking about things that have been fun at the World Cup again um, the performances of Colombia uh, they've beaten so far Greece 3-0 and Ivory Coast 2-1 the 3-0 slightly flattered Colombia I thought Greece were actually pretty uh, pretty tidy in that game they just basically made three serious defensive errors and the the third one came after the game was was well and truly lost um but the Ivory Coast Colombia game where uh, the incision of Colombia's break for their second goal was absolutely electrified it was hairs on the back of the neck stuff it was like the Cote d'Ivoire lost the ball Colombia were onto it incredibly quickly I think James Rodriguez uh, who's having a standout World Cup with the through ball and an absolutely stunning finish it was so quick it was so direct and pure um, and of course the fantastic goal celebrations yeah I, I, Colombia have been great to watch actually and, and brilliant in the transition and um, you know, I think a lot of people thought they'd be a very good side, but then we've seen it before, right? So it was, it was always a bit hard to say, this is a great Colombia side. Um, I, I remember thinking that about other Colombia sides. James Rodriguez. Uh, there, there's me thinking he was called James. This paradigm that you see every time like if you do a search for it's James, not James on Twitter while they're playing, it's people going apoplectic about a commentator pronouncing his name how it's supposed to be pronounced his name's not James it's spelt the same but that's not his name yeah I was a bit confused I thought uh, what was the Middle East peace process got to do with this but yeah there you go I finally worked it out uh, he's been fantastic but then again he, he is a 40 million pound player so a lot of people expected him to be fantastic uh, uh, talk about him moving on to a bigger club but uh, at 40 million pounds or whatever Monaco paid for him he's he's super super expensive but back to the World Cup Colombia have been really entertaining to watch and, and uh, not least because they bring a ton of fans with them as well which is one of the other things uh, to mention I think about the uh, it being in South America, lots and lots of South American fans, as you'd expect, I suppose, in Brazil. But they've really uh, made the atmosphere um, you know, electric, I think, in many games. Yeah, and we can't talk about South American fans without talking about Chile. Another one of the highlights of the group um, stages so far, the performance of Chile. Chile's 2-0 demolition of Spain was matched only by their fans demolishing the media centre. Uh, quite extraordinary scenes as some enterprising Chile fans worked out that there was just a cardboard wall between them and the pitch but then apparently, according to Jonathan Wilson, they just took a wrong turn so instead of if instead of going trying to get through the media centre to the pitch they'd taken the other turn. They would have been escalators straight down to the pitch and they would have got away with it but that was, that was wonderful to see 
not least for the incredible scenes of them being led out, sort of frog-marched by FIFA police, presumably, out with one arm on, on their shoulders. And just a look on their face like, oh my goodness, we've done something really silly. Just got excited and caught up in the moment here. Yeah, well, the, the FIFA police, of course, you know, famously from the 2010 World Cup, a, a couple of muggers uh, mugged some supporters on a... Wednesday were tried on a Thursday and sent to prison for 15 years on the Friday. The special fever courts, which are in place, uh, are incredible stuff. They're, they're almost a, a state unto themselves. They're not in place for this World Cup, though. There's been no re-emergence of the fever courts. Well, there you go. Corrected. Good. That was entertaining. But Chile, I mean, Chile were no surprise, right? We knew they were a very, very good side. And, and also... Yeah, Sam Paoli is is just you know, he's he's obviously a very high quality coach because he gets his team playing in multiple different formations in any one game, depending on the nature of the game at the time. And you can go three at the back, five at the back, four four two, or anywhere in between. I think it's it's been absolutely brilliant watching them, and they've got some very high quality players, of course. And and Alexis Sanchez is um, not only did he cost me a fortune. Thanks, Alexis. But he's had a fine game through the centre. When you say a fortune, do you want to tell the people how much it really was? Uh, well, it, it was a fiver <laughs> at 317 to 1 if he'd scored. Oh, OK. Fair enough. <laughs> well, that but was he a didn't. fortune then. But there you go. So um, betting is a mugs game, which is why I, I, I bet not very much. So talking of a mugs game, Brazil, they won the opening game in very, very questionable circumstances. And I was I was watching that game wondering... I mean, first of all, Croatia looked really impressive as they then went on to do again against Cameroon. But that ridiculous penalty, which I don't think there's any way that that penalty belies corruption because Fred has just properly conned the ref there. If you look at that from the ref's angle, you can easily see why it looks like the Croatian defender has thrown Fred to the ground. Oh, sure. Not corruption, but uh, yeah, a homo ref in the opening game of the tournament and a, and a dodgy dive from the home player. You know, I guess that all, all the circumstances adding up to that one. And, you know, you felt sorry for Croatia because they did perform so well and they deserved to get a point out of that. But uh, it, it wasn't to be. But Brazil, yeah, interesting because they, they don't half feel limited. And yeah, they've, they've got lots and lots of high quality talent there. Not quite putting it all together there's still time of course and and by the end of the tournament they may start to click and and we'll see if they can find the right balance you know one of one of the things about them is they seem to be playing within themselves and it, it looks almost as if there's too much pressure on them well Neymar bursting into tears at the end of the national anthem was pretty telling and Marcello who had done the same after the first national anthem scoring an own goal within 10 minutes you know um I wonder about that Brazil side, I have to say. I mean, okay, so I was doing some sort of scrap of paper calculation sort of thing, and I reckon that the best teams so far in this World Cup have been Holland, Germany, Chile, Colombia, and France. And I would be quite surprised still if the winner comes out of those who have been the best side so far. But Brazil would be right down the bottom end, and I'm not sure that actually it is to do with their... The, the pressure and all that so much as actually there's a bit of a lack of quality because really who would you have in a world 11 from that Brazil side Neymar and Thiago Silva and that's probably it right their midfield looks ponderous it really does it looks like their only move is to look for Neymar. The wing play has been of really poor quality. Dani Alves looks to have lost a yard of pace. They've really struggled against Mexico to make any kind of impression. Once you keep Neymar out of the game, you asked where the goals are going to come from. And I very boldly said, oh, Fred scored loads of goals in the Confederations Cup. But this is the Fred we've uh, come to know and love, really, that's been on show in this game a little bit more. Well, look, I wonder whether they've just been a bit too conservative. So if you, if you throw... Willian, Oscar, Neymar, all in there and go a bit more attacking, then then maybe there's a better opportunity for you to score more goals as a Brazilian side. I think they've been a bit too European about it uh, to date. But but interesting thing uh, you were saying about who've been the best sides and who's likely to make it through. I mean, you know, you're right. Yeah, Holland, 
France, Germany, all been excellent. Uh, Germany, excellent despite the draw against uh, Ghana. Fantastic game, as we mentioned. But the, the way looks clear for Argentina, who have not been that impressive to get towards the far stages. Now, they will have to beat Chile at some point by the looks of it, which could go either way on current form, of course. But I still wouldn't bet against an Argentina-Brazil final from here on in. Yeah, it's a fool's game uh, betting, a uh, fool's game predicting, of course, but it could happen. I would bet against that if I was a betting person because I don't think Brazil are going to get past the last 16 at this point unless they dramatically improve because Holland and Chile have both looked more than a match for Brazil. I mean, Brazil are probably going to win their group anyway because they've got a better goal difference than Mexico and Mexico have got to play Croatia and I think Croatia are probably going to beat Mexico even. But yeah, so I, I think I think it's, it's set up to be a Brazil-Chile or Brazil-Holland second round tie and I don't think Brazil are favourites in either of those, the way things are at the moment. Another highlight for me uh, has been uh, the performance, this is a little more personal perhaps, but the performance of the French national side. No idea how to predict it beforehand. I was looking at the squad thinking, that looks really good to me. Uh, What's going on? And actually they turned out to put in a really excellent couple of shifts. I mean, Honduras are not a good side, but England couldn't get a goal against them, albeit in a friendly. And France managed three, thanks to some really phenomenally incisive attacking play. That game was really uncomfortable to watch because of how, just how violent Honduras were. I mean, there's sort of physical play and then there's intent to cause grievous bodily harm. Pogba, lucky not to be sent off after Palacios kind of tried to mount him. Um, and then Pogba kind of understandably lashed out because what Palacios was doing was was just nasty. Uh, and I was very happy to see him get sent off for a, a, a horrendous foul. Not violent horrendous but just very low quality foul in the box yes one of the most predictable occurrences in the world cup that one Honduras getting a red card along with Uruguay whose commitment to utter dirtiness has been very long founded and impressive it's it's kind of a national style national ethic you can talk about tic-tac of the spanish the Uruguayans and violence have gone together for a long long time um the uh, the switzerland france game was I mean, it was mesmeric. I kind of expected a lot of Switzerland this tournament and they've not got anywhere close to living up to it. They laboured to a victory over Ecuador and France absolutely tore them apart. And that was, that was from my perspective, brilliant to see. Very impressive, yeah. No, I mean, you, you can certainly hedge your bets uh, as, as well as being uh, born and raised in England. You're part French and uh, I suppose a little bit German. So not only are you a failure uh, and a cheese-eating surrender monkey, but a totalitarian imperialist. And I can't say any of those words, but uh, very good. Have you got any Dutch in you? <laughs> well, no, but that's just, that's adoption, isn't it? I've adopted the Dutch because my team's manager is running their country. I'm as much German as I am French in technical heritage terms i was never raised uh, with a love of germany let's say given the reason that my uh, my ancestors ended up in in england not ancestors grandparents like i'd go to france every year so i always feel quite french but never really felt very german so look any more highlights because uh, i figure i figure yes. okay a couple more and then and then we should talk yes, about the punditry one. which is not a highlight <laughs> you said that the most inevitable thing in the world cup was palacios getting sent off but no that was the second most inevitable thing in the world cup because the most inevitable thing in the world cup was pepe getting sent off oh yes <laughs> how could i forget that was actually i mean the the irony within an irony uh, of this of course Pepe was going to get sent off and uh, of course Muller was going to dive to try and get him sent off but then the the deliciousness was the fact that that Pepe would never have been sent off for the first offence if you can call it that and then decided <laughs> to nut the guy for pretending to be nutted in the first place beautiful the hilarious bit where Sammy Kadira kind of sidled up to Ronaldo and like covered his mouth and whispered to Ronaldo and then Ronaldo just shook his head and raised an eyebrow and it was definitely like well we all saw that coming didn't we and Ronaldo looked very fed up with his Portuguese teammates in a way that um, actually for once was not just nasty narcissistic delusion but actually had every right to be very good yes uh messi messi as well worth a mention that that argentina have not looked very impressive but there's something bubbling there the fact that messi's kind of rescued them he looked very average in the first half against bosnia and then scored that wonder goal the second one and then in the last minute against iran with 11 men behind the ball messi conjured some 
proper magic to get his team a win and just plants the seed of a narrative of a 1986 situation there. it does uh, tactically they're nowhere as good as the 1986 Argentina side who had a way of playing right this they still you know they come into this tournament not not knowing whether they're going to play three at the back or four at the back uh, whether they're going to build the side around Messi as the the false nine or not and this has been a bit of a mess um, and clearly Messi is the boss here so uh, the, the manager ought to listen to him and do exactly as he wants because that's the only way he's going to keep his job. Yeah, and also, you get the best out of Messi, you get the best out of Argentina. Right? You know, undoubtedly, they have to do that. And they've got loads and loads of talent there, but they need to build around Messi. And, and if they work that one out, they're definitely going to be a threat. So yeah, fine, fine couple of goals from Messi. Brilliant individual goal to start off with so typically messy and then the last minute goal against Iran which was heartbreaking for Iran although their commitment to parking the bus for the full 90 minutes was solid yeah yeah <laughs> although did have a good couple of good chances themselves which added to the drama late in the game at peak Kieros right that's that's what no, we were, was, were at peak Kieros it, it really was it was so Kieros <laughs> um I, I think the uh that the group stages as a whole so far have been really fantastic and there's been barely a bad game. Iran-Nigeria worthy of a mention because it wasn't just that they parked the bus but Nigeria just couldn't find their legs in that game and and Nigeria's performance against Bosnia really highlighted just how bad they were against Iran and it was really nice to see them not sort of capitulate to that, that initial... Uh, lack of quality but to find the quality in themselves to put in a really good performance I, I really enjoyed that game the 1-0 victory over Bosnia very good so pundits we we like to moan about pundits during tournaments and there will definitely be some highs and some lows so uh, per- perhaps you can pick your best three and your worst three so so I mean in no particular order I have enjoyed for different reasons Martin O'Neill because he's Martin O'Neill and uh and his ability to make fun of uh, Cannavaro and Vieira has been very entertaining. I've enjoyed Thierry Henry because he says nothing of any note whatsoever, but he looks very cool doing it. Uh, and I've enjoyed Thierry Henry making fun of Robbie Savage because Robbie Savage is clearly not fit to lace his... He looks like a washed-up roadie, Robbie Savage, and uh, he's done one line too many. Uh, but somehow found himself on the stage with the rock stars. My top three, Rio is definitely in my top three. I think Rio has added something to the coverage of this tournament. That You know, he's passionate about football and he's incredibly insightful. You know, talked about how, what an intelligent footballer Ferdinand is for so many years and when he starts talking about football he displays that intelligence you know the best moment of punditry in this tournament came during the halftime of Spain against Holland uh, and you had Henri Ferdinand and Shearer and Shearer raised his game actually next to Henri and Ferdinand and there was there was real analysis they're all properly top quality players so, so Ferdinand's in my top three Henri for similar reasons to you and I think Danny Murphy would be the other one that I quite enjoy watching. He even did a good job of co-commentary because I think there's there's a there's a delineation between co-commentary and punditry. And bad punditry is kind of inexcusable because punditry is actually quite easy if you know anything about football. But co-commentary is genuinely quite a difficult art. I think. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair comment, and I have liked Murphy's work. I think he's pretty good. On the low side, Townsend, but he's been awful forever. It just talks in in awful banal cliches and seems to resent. Any- Anything that approaches technically good football, uh, clearly he just he just can't hide it, and uh, it's it's really interesting. And then his passion for England is interesting, given that he played his entire career for the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> Let's not get into any more politics. Um, and then um, I felt sorry for him, but Pip Neville, oh dear, he was he was Marvin the paranoid android, wasn't he, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? He was so sardonic and miserable throughout the entire. Um, entire commentary his his first outing and, and in fact he only got better when he got so quiet you couldn't hear him anymore Pip Neville doing commentary like a snooker commentator going up and down with every sentence everything started and went it was all broken up in staccato I felt sorry for him because for your first go at live television co-commentary to be an England game uh, is really unfortunate and I think I kind of wonder if they just assumed he'd be good at it because Gary Neville's quite good at it the thing is 
I don't think he was miserable. I think he was nervous. I think it was it was nerves rather than misery because he's a very enthusiastic pundit, isn't he, Neville? And he really cares about the England team. And I think he was trying to keep that a little bit in check. Um, but yeah, it was a bad time to throw on a newbie, really. Uh, and he didn't do a very good job. And also, it wasn't helped by the fact that his microphone levels were weird. So he sounded really like he was right in your head, you know, because <laughs> he, was, he was like, a, it was kind of, hold on. It was a bit like this. You got the sense that he was incredibly close to his microphone. You know, it was weird. Yes, weird. So was that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, presenters, I think Gary Lineker's done a good job. He, he normally does. You know, he's... Uh, yeah, he's excellent. He, he, uh, he made a good joke about uh, Henri's ball, didn't he? And, um, and Charles, uh, I loathe him more with every passing game. Uh, I have to say, you know, he's uh, he adds nothing. In fact, you'd be better to not have a presenter and just have the pundits chatting uh, than have Charles there. And not only for the utterly dumb, moronic and ignorant commentary about uh, the uh, the supporters and the protests, but also managed to completely whitewash Luis Suarez's racism as well, which was interesting. And then just, just kind of moronic comments all through, and it just doesn't add anything i think he thinks he's being fun and chipper and and the man on the street but uh, he's not and the thing is about this you know when he first got the itv job he came from working lunch and you thought okay well he, he can add a you know a kind of fun light element uh, and that's okay punditry and analysis football has moved on significantly not you know the explosion of analysis online and stats and tactics and and access to coaches and the bar has been raised in terms of analysis of games and the technology has helped but so have the people coming into the game and I just think supporters have so much access to good quality information these days that when you get someone who offers nothing of that uh, then it really shows even Shearer has done some research I mean I'm not sure he did his own research because he's clearly reading off crib sheets but even he has attempted to, as you mentioned earlier, attempted to up his game. Charles, not so much. Well, the BBC got really hammered in Euro 2012 and they deserved it. The kind of Lawrenson paradigm, you know, that everyone just seemed miserable to be there. And and I think it was it was Euro 2012. It might have been the World Cup beforehand. But but they it really feels like they've responded to that, actually. It really feels that they've responded to the Alan Shearer, we don't know much about him, criticism too. Because I, I, I don't think they've, they've barely put a foot wrong, apart from in co-commentary, and in continuing to employ Robbie Savage, which you know there was a game where uh, I can't, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't remember what game it was. But there's there's two games where um, in, in the first game a side did quite well, and in the second time game, oh yeah, it was Italy. It was the Italy Costa Rica game where Savage just could not understand why Italy weren't as good uh, as they were against England, and it's like you were a professional footballer of whatever level for a really long time and you don't know why sometimes teams click and sometimes they don't, you know. Not that you don't know why it happens, but it's mind-boggling to you that it happens. We've seen it so often, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, Savage, Savage just... I watched a late-night game which was covered by Robbie Savage, the Ghana USA game, and the beautiful thing, the red button on the BBC, you can turn off the commentary and still have the crowd noise. Unfortunately, you can't get an HD picture... But worth also complimenting the BBC for having options like the tactical camera, which having had to write about a couple of games, having a second screen with a tactical camera, which is just basically like sticking a camera in the Stretford end and leaving it going. It's really, really helpful for seeing the, the, the flow of the game. Well, it really does help, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I think for someone like you who uh, takes screenshots of games and then talks about them, I, I'm not sure you're doing that in this World Cup or not, but many people do. And uh, that's that's been really good. It's an excellent tool just to add to your second screen or third screen because of course you have to have the tv on one uh, the ipad's having my second screen and then i'm tweeting from one of my two phones <laughs> i'm not kidding about this no. uh, and i've also got the laptop going at the same time to look at all the stats fantastic um and actually that does that does add to the kind of complete football immersion and we are reaching the point now sadly i think maybe even tonight might be the last 11 o'clock game we're reaching that that point there's nothing that confirms the fundamental mortality of humanity than the second round of group games 
teams starting in the World Cup because during that first round of group games, every team you see, you're seeing for the first time and it it feels uh, like it's going to go on forever. But now we've reached a point where we're not going to be able to watch three football matches a day. We're going to have to choose which football match to watch. Ah, no, but you can watch two at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you're right. It, it makes it, it is a change now. We're not going to get all those games. We had four games in one day at one point, but three most of the days. And now we're going down to two. And sadly, sadly, when we get to the ladder rounds and the knockout stages, there will be days without games. I, I know this is hard. I, I may need therapy, but it's true. Yeah, it's a weird. It's weird. I don't believe it. So our predictions are not going great so far, but it's very early days in the tournament. One thing that's been really interesting is just how many of the best players of this tournament are performing really well, which doesn't always happen, does it? Um, I think with the exception of Spain and England, so-called sort of superstars, and Ronaldo not really being able to make a dent because he's sort of half injured and Portugal are terrible so far. Everyone else that you would kind of hope to make a big splash at the World Cup has made a big splash. Karim Benzema has been on fire. Van Persie and Robin have both been on fire. Müller's scored his goals. Miroslav Klose is worth mentioning. Uh, equals Ronaldo's record. Kind of don't want to see him <laughs> get that record. But, you know, there we go. No, no. World greats are up there. Uh, in the top 10, like Pele and Jus Fontaine and Gerd Muller and uh, Miroslav Klose. Who has an outstanding record at international level, it has to say, but uh, you wouldn't put him in that category. And, and of course, Fat Ronaldo. Yeah, absolutely. Original Ronaldo. Uh, so disrespectful to call him Fat Ronaldo. Proper, real Ronaldo. That's that's what he should be known as. Yes. Though it does come to something when Miroslav Klose has 14 more goals than Wayne Rooney in World Cup uh, it does yes uh, it's fair to say he's played in a better team during that time and been used in his preferred position for more of it fair enough well that was the games and the pundits and England and uh, you listeners have some questions too so uh, what have the listeners got to say Paul at Gareth Bale 22 uh, says if Holland the real Gareth Bale no not the not the real Gareth Bale but the uh, Gareth Bale's real official parody account um, asks if Holland win the World Cup will the prospect of going to United to play for Van Gaal tempt more players I, I do think genuinely I've been looking at this World Cup thinking do you know what this really must make a difference to how players feel about going to play for Van Gaal because even you know younger players won't be familiar with Van Gaal in the same way because a lot of his most glorious times came quite a long time ago so to see that he's properly still got it must make a difference yeah I I agree I think it will make a big difference to players who may have been on the fence especially with United being out of the Champions League uh, I mean, of course, yeah. the the one thing is money, then it's the status of the club and then it's the competition you're playing. But the manager does play a big part. Just have a look at what David Moyes has to say about Marin Fellaini. Have a look at the Dutch team in this World Cup and tell me which one you'd rather play for. Absolutely. Um, at Dane Sayer says, who do we support now that England are out? Holland for Robin, France for Patrice, or Belgium for Adnan and Marouan? So for me, um, it's easy. Of course, I support France because uh, of my being quite French. Um, but next on the list would definitely be Holland. Not so much for Robin, although it's brilliant to see him firing but but for the manager for the fact that you know we are literally watching a team managed by our manager in the World Cup Mm. Uh, interesting fact about the Dutch when they play their game against Chile the the group decider uh, they will play without a van in the team for the first time in like 40 years or something crazy like that Uh, it's not 40 but it's a long time yeah, I think it's since go. 96, maybe. No, no Van Persie uh, and Van Gaal doesn't count because, of course, he's the manager. Absolutely. Although I think I think he'd be a big unit, actually. Stick him up front, he might do all right. <laughs> I like this question, um, Ed, and I'd like your thoughts on it from Scotty W at Scotty W with four T's. In Scott, it's a lot of tease. Um, which midfielder has impressed you the most so far uh, in this tournament, more in terms of making their side tick than assists and goals? Well, aside from Pirlo, who was excellent against England, but uh, not so good against Costa Rica, I think the French midfield has been outstanding in their two games. Uh, Kabai, uh, surprisingly the deepest of the three, and, and Pogba and, and Matudi, uh, alongside, and I think it's actually Matudi who's been the most impressive of the three. Uh, Pogba, of course, dropped for the second game, although he came on as a substitute. But, um, you know, I, the PS, 
G players has just been all action, hasn't he? So, so maybe he's my most impressive so far. Uh, it's been like Blaise Matuidi has got the coolest name in football and his goal against Switzerland. I know you were specifically not asking about goals, but he also did make the team tick. Kabay too. Uh, Luka Modric, unsurprisingly, looks wonderful. There's no shock there. Vidal doesn't look at full fitness, but still is, I think, the player in the world I would most like to see come to United. Yeah, he, re- he reminds me. I mean, he's not exactly the same, so it's not you know like for like comparison. But it's keen when he's younger. Great attacking player, great defensive player. Yeah, absolutely. And with the drive, you know. Um, yeah. Although I'm not sure Roy King would have ever rocked that haircut. Um, at UTD Vines uh, asks, who's been your standout performer so far in Brazil? So not just midfield, but across the board. Uh, I'd have to say that the Dutch front two of Robin and Robin. Yeah, I mean, Robin for me, because he's just been a bit more dynamic. I mean, Robin has been excellent. But uh, yeah, Robin, Robin's the man. I mean, how much should United have paid for him back in 2004? A lot more than we offered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, James Rodriguez mentioned earlier. Yeah. Definitely worth the mention. There are there are many, many standout performers. Muller too. I mean, he doesn't get the uh, the kind of praise because he's not as exciting to watch. But um, And people talk about him as a false nine. He's just a number nine. He's just a very, very good number nine. He makes some very smart runs all the time. Very, very dynamic. I mean, um, do they do player cam in this World Cup? They do online, don't yeah. they? I don't think they've had a player cam on, on, on him. But if they do... Watch him because he's uh, he's very smart in the way he pulls his defenders around. Yeah, Louis Van Gaal, uh, unquestionably, I don't know, it's sort of cheating to call him a standout performer, but but he's been tremendous. I think pretty much the whole France side, Valbuena, um, uh, has been excellent. There's been a lot of really fine performances. And very gracious of the French to play their mascot too. Very gracious. <laughs> you leave him alone. It's not his fault that he's little. <laughs> um, he is remarkably uh, he is a remarkably small gentleman um, I want to give a shout out to Enyema in the Nigeria goal as well because uh, and, and oh of course the Mexican keeper Ochoa um, was was phenomenal yeah both very solid guy and anyone who's been a football manager player which I haven't been for at least five or six years now due to family and work commitments know that he's brilliant because he always was in the old school days. So, but no, a very fine goalkeeper. And of course, without a club Ochoa, so he's going to make someone very happy with that. No fee and make his bank manager very happy too. Um, at Tom underscore McGee, just no question, just wants to start a campaign to sign Bernardes just for the comedy Bananas in Pyjamas song potential. Good move. Um, and um, at Grant's Tutoring says, are any of the Dutch team realistic targets for United? I think this is a really interesting point because actually in terms of realistic targets, meaning players that you could attract to the club, yeah. I would say barring Robin, they all are. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of talk about Robin, but I don't think United are going to pay over 30 million for a 30 something year old. Yeah, lots of them, because as we said in our World Cup preview podcast, lots of them play in domestic competition and, and the money's just not there. So yeah, quite a few players at Feyenoord and Ajax, uh, and they're definitely guessable if we think they're good enough, you know, and I, I'd, I'd take with a pinch of salt the assumption that just because they play for Van Hull at the national level that they can automatically make the jump, you know, there's some of the younger players look excellent, but, you know, they're prospects and I think United need a couple of senior players in there too. But I wouldn't be surprised. I think they are affordable. Just while I'm thinking about um, changes at United, uh, Rio Ferdinand, of course, has left. Love the quote. I think I saw it in the, this weekend's Observer on Jagielka. We know that debate. Jagielka is in no man's land. He's not attacking the ball and he's not covering. He's either got to do one or the other. Couldn't wait to have a little dig, could he? Couldn't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag what would Rio do? So I, I don't think I could be enjoying this World Cup more unless it was, of course, not built on a platform of human suffering. That would be helpful. But other than that, I couldn't be enjoying this World Cup more. It's been absolutely outstanding from the off. I mean, the the, the opening game had all that incident, had plenty of goals. It, you know, it was bubbling. And then that first proper full day when you had... Spain losing 5-1. The fact that Spain are out already, absolutely staggering um, 
and and we we did a little bit on them but it really is mind blowing um and yeah it's just that there hasn't been a day where there hasn't been a good game we went through a long run of games without any bad games at all but then Carlos Queiroz stepped up to the plate and proved that there is no world cup he's not capable of ruining so yeah but hardly a bad game hardly a bad game yeah no very true the the quality's been excellent not if you're a defender i think there's been some pretty horrendous defending but uh, but that's made for entertaining football yeah and we kind of knew that going in didn't we we knew that the the balance of power in world football has shifted from defense to attack and it is it's the classic reactive thing isn't it 2010 was a really defensive world cup so 2014's a really attacking world cup it, it does go in those cycles and I- there will be 10 nil nil draws in a row <laughs> In the knockout games, you mark my words. No, I just you don't see words. it. I don't see, I don't see a, a team in the top level compare uh, like with the ability to contain another team. You know, they they just don't. The defensive resources aren't there, and these the systems are set up to score rather than contain. Mm, very good. Well, that's a good point to end our World Cup podcast number two. I think, and uh, it's it's been a very good week and a bit. You know, thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, we we don't get the orgy of football over the next next week and a bit. Uh, we'll be back with you in around next weekend time ish. Depending on when we find to, the time to record. Uh, yeah. We'd like to do something between the group stages and the knockout stages, which looks like it might be viable. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, very good. And uh, look, it's it's been outstanding stuff. Great entertainment. And uh, it, it's been even better because I've just told Mrs. Rand at the beginning of the tournament, I will be sitting in front of the TV, most likely from about half past four until one in the morning. And I'll be watching football and I'll be drinking beer. Live with it. You're such a lad, Ed. You're such a hashtag lad. It, it's been excellent. And uh, <laughs> and there's nothing they can do. Oh, I've been... I've, that's That sounded really sinister and... <laughs> <laughs> There's no, there's nothing they can do. Um, I, I've, I've not had to make any negotiations. Uh, I've been just sat uh, drinking tea mostly from, from that time until that time. Have you missed any games? Have you not watched? Is there anything that you've not watched live? Yeah, no. A couple of the one o'clock. Well, no, sorry, a couple of the two a.m. games. I think there've been there's, two two a.m. No, games. just just one. I think there's just one, one two a.m. game all tournament actually. Um, and that was Japan against Ivory Coast, which I recorded and yes. watched the following morning. Yes. Um, that was good. But I have I have missed a couple. I missed uh, Russia South Korea and I missed Cameroon Croatia, which I did want to watch, but uh, it just was not an option, sadly. And I'm thinking about skipping. Here we are. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm thinking about skipping Belgium Russia and South Korea Algeria to go and see some human <sighs> beings, but I'm not confident. <laughs> No, I, I'm not sure that's acceptable behaviour. Because the evening game, the States against uh, Portugal, will be a really good one. 11 o'clock kickoff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about that one. I think that's going to be good. USA, USA, USA. Oh dear, oh dear. Well, uh, on that note, we'll we'll conclude this podcast. And uh, it's been great to be back. And uh, not we've hardly talked about United at all, which is uh, a bit odd. You had to throw a couple of mentions in there. And uh, of course, uh, Antonio Valencia celebrating not only only Ecuador's fine win against Honduras, uh, but a new contract. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that? I think it's uh, a little odd, but uh, most likely protecting his transfer value since his contract is up in the summer of 2015. Then again, we said that about Nani and he spent the entire season earning £5 million sitting on the bench. Yeah, I mean, I think Valencia is going to play a role next season. I think, and if we can, if we can get him confident and informed, then that'll be a, an excellent player to keep around. But either way, you can't just you can't let a player of that quality just let his contract trickle down and then um, and then leave on a free, can you? Really? No, you can't. And talking of free, this podcast has been free, and uh, that'll that'll be us done for the week. Uh, we'll be back sometime around next weekend. Can't promise exactly when. If you want to get us in the meantime, at UTD Rantcast for me on twitter at united rant for ed get us both at facebook.com slash united rant and read all ed's uh, world cup coverage on unitedrant.co.uk and you can read my stuff on the bleach report uh, wherein i'm still writing a bit about united but also i'm writing n- numerous in-depth tactical uh, reviews and previews of the performances of the greece national football team send help